0: Welcome to episode 16 of Flying Podcast. Today I'll be talking with Paul Lometschinski. Paul took part in a flight from Newfoundland to the UK earlier this year to commemorate the 90th anniversary of Alcock & Brown's first non-stop flight across the Atlantic in 1919. Paul's flight was in an ultra-modern four-seat, twin-engined, diamond DA42 twin-star, but was nonetheless a a risky adventure. By way of a departure, this interview was done using Skype over the internet, uh, but I think it all turned out okay. Anyway, here's my interview with Paul. Good afternoon, Steve. How are you? I'm very
1: well. Good afternoon, Paul. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Ready to chat to you. Hopefully I don't bore you to tears with my revelations.
0: I'm sure you won't. You've got a very interesting story, particularly what I want to hear about is your flight across the Atlantic in a a Diamond DA42 Twin Star.
1: Okay,
0: yeah. First off, uh, how did you get into flying? What's your, your story?
1: well i think most most people are uh, uh, infatuated with flying from very young age i remember uh, looking up at vampire jets when i was uh, about 3 to 4 years old and wondering all about flying at that time And i used to live near heathrow airport and uh, probably that would be in about 1958 59 60 um and I've always been uh, intrigued by by flying. Uh, so I suppose it wasn't surprising that uh, when I had some money, I, I, I wasn't a particularly keen scholar, but when I had some money I decided that I would go and take some flying at my local flying club, which was uh, Swanton Morley, a big grass field in Norfolk, not far from Norwich. And uh, in about a year and a half, I got my PPL, um, and uh, once I got my PPL, I suddenly realized, well, actually, I can't fly in all the weathers, it's uh, quite limiting, this piece of paper, uh, and I considered the idea that, well, I might try and become a commercial pilot, even though at the time I felt I was quite old for that, which would have been 23 years old, which actually wasn't old at all, was it?
0: Not really. Um,
1: so I went to America. And I got an American commercial and instrument uh, rating. And uh, surprisingly, I couldn't get any work when I came back with it. So I thought, well, where to now? And uh, I went back and got my instructor rating. And uh, I'd been offered a job in Woodbridge with the Americans at the Air Force Base. They ran a flying club for their personnel there. And uh, that's how I was initiated into flying, where it almost paid for me to live.
0: And that that would have been teaching the FAA syllabus?
1: Yes, that would be, yes. Most of my clients then would be private pilots, budding private pilots, and uh, it it wasn't terrifically well paid, but we did have all the facilities of the United States Air Force behind us, so it's quite exciting from that standpoint. And. And I, I would generally share the pattern with F-4 fighters and Hercules transports and uh, HH-53 uh, helicopters. Uh, and uh, later, uh, we the A-10 Thunderbolt, which oh, actually cool. was very versatile. It could slow down and keep uh, in the circuit pattern with the Cessna 150. <laughs> Is that right? And
0: what happened after that?
1: Um I I left there. I, I I worked for a short time down south at uh, Lid uh, because I converted to a British instructor rating, and I worked on getting my commercial pilot's license in the UK. So it would be the CAA commercial pilot's license. I met I met my wife down in Lid, and uh, uh, I got offered a job as the CFI in uh, Kaduna, which is in northern Nigeria, as the uh, CFI there. Uh, so we got married, and I got my written exams out of the way. got issued a CAA commercial license, and uh, went off and ran a flying club. And uh, I was uh, also made to be the examiner there. I could examine uh PPL uh for for their for their license in northern nigeria so out of two examiners i was one of the examiners for nigeria
0: what an interesting place to
1: fly oh it was definitely an interesting place to fly it wasn't we normally used to lose touch with uh, air traffic about 20 miles and probably wouldn't talk to anybody until we were another 20 miles away from our destination if they indeed had air traffic so it's very uh, pure flying if you'd like to yeah. think of it that way but uh, yeah very very interesting uh, slightly different to what we used to in the UK
0: how long were you there for Paul
1: uh, two years and uh, we, we we started a family and I was I wanted to accompany my wife home and uh, I wouldn't, I wasn't able to get leave, so we decided that we probably, it's not such a terrific place to have very young children. So we came home. And we found out to our surprise that whilst we'd been away, we'd gone into a recession, so we were not really very able to get work when I came back. And uh, I had to consider with a new child on the way whether we were going to spend The money that we saved in Africa on uh, flying training and upgrading my fairly new commercial to a commercial with an instrument rating, or whether we bought our first house, and so we went ahead and bought the first house. Oh, that's quite. (laughs) (laughs) But we needed that more than an instrument rating at the time. Yeah, and uh, I held on to my licenses. Uh, and build up, built up a small business that was uh, unrelated to flying. But uh, every time we came across flying, it seemed to cost us money rather than earn us money. So it was one of these things where I, uh, as it were, hung up my spurs for many years and just did the minimum to hold on to my licenses. And We ended up, we had two children, two sons, both of them decided to go to university and financially that sort was a big drain on a family and anybody's family and uh, we put them through their university education once that was over uh, I had the realization that actually these licenses that I clung on to for many years in the draw were actually still valuable and people wanted people of my age to, to come and fly and, and teach them what we knew. So I, I came back into flying in 2007.
0: So you were out there for what, about 20 years?
1: Mm, over 20 years. I, I mean I did, I did actually attempt to get back in in 1987 but it was ill-conceived because I gave myself two weeks to get the instrument rating. And that wasn't enough when he have been out of flying for a long time. But I suppose that probably sums me up. I tend to try to do things quickly and then probably a bit, a little bit unrealistic. Okay.
0: Um, so what was your aim then when you came back into flying in two thousand and seven? What did you think you were going to be doing?
1: Well, no, I, I'm I, I'm I'm fifty six now, and I, before I'm unable to fly anymore my ambition is is to be able to be a captain of a light jet but whether I'll fulfil that ambition that's a different story uh, initially I'd, I'd been offered a job in Florida to teach uh, commercial pilots under the JAR system um, with my background uh, it should have worked quite well however the, the firm that I worked for hadn't actually organised it so they hadn't uh, managed to, to have me uh, regularized from an immigration standpoint, so it all fell apart on that. And I, I upgraded my licenses while I was there and came home. And uh, since then I've built a business uh, where I seek out individuals that need uh, high level tuition and uh, I, I teach them how to use their systems, on their airplane, which I'm well versed on, uh, having upgraded everything in the United States, uh, such as digital cockpit and obviously instrument flying and and what have you so yeah so so basically that's that's and I get these strange jobs that appear uh, such as the d a forty two trip across the Atlantic. now how did that come about um well I was actually talking to a colleague uh, at a local airport and uh, he'd met uh, Terence sefton Potter who was was the uh, gentleman that uh, actually initiated the trip uh to say that he wanted a multi-engine rating and uh, he he had a, tw- a twin star which I'd I'd recently uh, converted onto a twin star and was teaching on regularly uh And he wanted to go across the Atlantic. Well, I've had an ambition to fly across the Atlantic for many years. And it was something that I was going to do uh, on my own in all probability in a single-engined aeroplane that I would buy and then resell when I brought to the UK. But uh, when I decided to do it, the dollar had uh, dropped significantly. And it it didn't seem to me to be so feasible. And, of course, there's a little bit of downturn in the economy and the, the crux of it was that whatever aircraft I brought to the UK had to be utilised quite significantly to make it viable so I was quite up for this and
0: uh, So was Terry thinking of just being trained to fly on his own to start with or...?
1: He, he'd actually intended, he's, he's a private pilot he had this intention that he was going to fly this across the Atlantic on his own Um. Which is not a feasible proposition for somebody with such a small amount of experience, because it's first of all, the the Atlantic area is below four th- four and a half thousand, he could theoretically fly VFR, um, but above that uh, level, it's an IFR zone, so you'd need an instrument rating to complete that journey.
0: Okay, so at some point, he thought. Hang on a minute, why don't I use Paul as a uh, co-pilot or yes. actual pilot?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I, I basically did the planning and uh, looked after the weather and plotted and, uh, and made sure that it could be accomplished without any fatalities.
0: I think uh, Terry had some sort of uh, commemorative uh, reason for doing this flight, didn't he?
1: Yeah. No, Terry actually is a... A small film producer and he he seems to specialize in in uh, as it were odd odd um, material for for different films i mean he made a film on racing drivers and he uh, he was quite interested in Orcock and brown because they're sort of the unsung heroes that flew across the Atlantic for the first time and uh he did an, a lot of research and he made a documentary about Warburton Brown's journey. And he wanted to have a comparison with, with the original journey back in 1919 as to how it would be today. Um, and the DA-42 came to mind because the DA-42, I suppose, has to be cutting edge uh, technology from the standpoint of, uh, of light aviation and, and, and private aviation because it's utilising the TILA engine, which is uh, a diesel engine that works on, on kerosene, which is is Jet A1 uh, from the tanker on the airfield, or, or heating oil, if you'd like to think of it in more domestic terms. And uh, with the advent of uh, the digital cockpit and uh gps uh that's state of the art it's got the garmin 1000 in it so navigation wise it's very very sophisticated
0: i remember from my school days old cock and brown were flying in a an open cockpit at world war one was it a Vickers vimy bomber
1: yeah it was apparently um i mean there were there was a there was a 10,000-pound prize offered by the Daily Mail prior to the First World War, yeah. that nobody claimed. And then uh, after the First World War, and they resurrected this prize to try to encourage uh, aviation, and there were several very formidable contenders to cross the Atlantic uh, other than Orcock and Brown. and and after a very late start, they entered the race and uh, one by one the differing competitors dropped out which which actually is detailed in a very good book. It's um, Yesterday we were in America, uh, which I'm not quite sure of the author but it actually gives the history of the flight. and, and the Vickers Vimy was, was similar to the A42 in that it got uh, two engines, but it's probably about where the similarity stopped. It was much larger aircraft, carried a lot more fuel, but the performance was much less. So we, we're talking around about 100 knots uh, cruise speed in still air, and none of the possibilities of climbing high uh so the uh
0: because they wouldn't have benefited from our weather forecasting services or flight planning I uh, know it now
1: no I, I don't think the weather weather reports were actually very accurate at all um and they were relying for navigation on on a uh, sextant uh, positions being taken by uh brown and uh they were in solid clouds for much of the duration of the flight. Um, and yet, yeah, by comparison, uh, nowadays, of course, we have airliners crossing the Atlantic, uh, m- numerous airliners, and each of them, as they give their position report, give the temperature and they give the wind speed. Uh, and all this data is collated and we can for for our journey in particular we could uh, compare the the weather charts showing the forecast wind and temperature to the weather systems that are actually forecast to exist and then cross-reference that with satellite uh, um, observations so so actually we can be quite clear about the weather where the weather's going to be in and, and what we're likely to encounter. So it's a a, a much safer journey.
0: Okay, so uh, going back a little bit in time, then Terry had decided he wanted to do this flight to commemorate the 90th anniversary of Alcock and Brown's flight across the Atlantic. He had picked you to be co-pilot with him. You had suggested the plane, is that correct?
1: No, he'd already already picked out the plane. And uh, Diamond had had entered into some sort of arrangement with him to supply the aircraft uh so we picked the aircraft up in november of last year uh in Vienna neustadt which is just north just south of uh, vienna and uh brought it via uh denmark and norway to the uk and uh Terry actually lives in Cannes so we, uh, but his, his um, family are all in Cardiff so we went over to Cardiff with it and then we later on dropped it back into Cannes and, until it was ready for its journey to Canada to make this trip in the early part of this year.
0: Why did you pick winter? I would have thought that would be the, the worst time with storms and bad weather.
1: Um, I tend to prefer winter. Uh, there are certain advantages and disadvantages. In the in the winter, uh, obviously the freezing level is lower. So in the, in the lower airspace, the cloud that's moisture laden uh, can cause a, a great deal of difficulty uh, with icing on the aircraft. However, with the colder temperatures, generally the build up of the cloud is lower, right. and and. Also, icing, the, 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 the degree of moisture that the cloud can contain uh, depends on the actual temperature of the cloud. So if we talk in stable cloud that's not within a, a CB or, or a thunderstorm, then say minus 20 has very low, low moisture content, as, and, and as we go below that, it's even less, and, 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 and obviously that will have a bearing on the height of the cloud, uh, so I don't know if my theory is correct, but I do know that we had layered cloud on our trip when we when we went to uh, Reykjavik by a wick uh, and we encountered some icing, it was, wasn't very severe icing, we were able to keep clear of it. Uh, I piloted the plane to position it from Reykjavik to Goose Bay on my own, we were expecting a layered cloud up to about 10 000, twelve thousand feet. I encountered cloud uh, 12 to 14, thousand feet heading towards the Canadian coast. Um, I didn't encounter any cloud, any icing all of the way, so maybe that bears out my theory but uh, and we didn't encounter any icing on the way back to the UK either, so that also perhaps bears it out.
0: You had you had quite a journey before you even commenced the actual journey, which is from Newfoundland back to the UK. You had to get the the airplane out, and you were starting from whereabouts in Newfoundland?
1: It was uh, St John's. Okay. So, so so basically, what we did we we, we, we came from Can to Cardiff, Cardiff to Wick, uh, Wick to Reykjavik, Reykjavik to Goose Bay, which Reykjavik to Goose Bay is quite a formidable journey because. Uh, Going westerly, uh, you encounter headwinds, so it was nine and a half hours, um, and I was holding about 60% power uh, on the aircraft, and I suppose the true airspeed would have been about 153, 155 for that, Uh, and uh, just a steady headwind all the way, and that took me nine and a half hours into Goose Bay. Um, when we got to Goose Bay, I left the plane, because Terry had gone home from Reykjavik to the UK, and uh, we met up a week later in Goose Bay, and we got snowed in in Goose Bay because it was the winter, so that wasn't such a sensible <laughs> sensible uh, way of doing it, uh, but we we then flew to uh, St. John's, where we picked up extra oxygen cylinders because he was quite concerned about having enough oxygen for both of us for the entire route of the flight, so that we could fly at quite high altitude. And then we came, we flew back to Gander and uh, fueled up the extra oxygen, and then we flew to St. John's uh, to prepare for our departure across the Atlantic. Um, we we actually were, were stuck in in Goose Bay for about three days, and then when we arrived in St. John's, uh, Terry obviously wanted to capture footage from a professional photographer uh, for 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 his documentary that he was making, and so we we did lots of shots of the aeroplane, which which spent took a lot of time and was quite tiring uh and we arrived at a situation where it was about one o'clock in the morning uh, and we were preparing to depart across the atlantic because we wanted to arrive um, in the early afternoon in the uk and uh the airplane because we we'd had a lot of the electrics on for the filming and and we had in, intended originally to go from gander Rather than St. John's, and I'd reprogrammed all the, the, um, waypoints on it, which were in Latin long, uh, that, that, you could actually make waypoints for the Garmin 1000. And, uh, I had to reprogram it for a different trip, and it, it wouldn't start, the battery was, was low. And because we'd been worn out by the activity of that night, I actually had to call a I called a stop to the trip because I thought it wasn't uh, ideal, it w- was not suitable, we should go with so much, so little sleep. Uh, it was approximately 40 to 50 minutes sleep we would have had before crossing the Atlantic.
0: Okay, so uh, you find yourself then in St John's waiting for uh, the ideal weather. Uh, be- yep. Before we start on the actual flight itself how was the plane prepared was anything specific done you say you had lots of oxygen loaded up but talking about fuel it's normal Uh, flight duration is what about a thousand miles
1: um yeah the 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 fuel on the diamond the the standard uh, setup is that you've got 75 gallons there's 50 gallons in the mains and 25 gallons in the auxiliaries and uh, we had an additional 66 gallons instead of the back seats, which could be pumped into the mains. So uh, just a rough calculation, what's that, about uh, One, 140-something gallons. I should know this off by heart.
0: Yep, sounds about right. Um,
1: and we burn in the cruise. We, we managed to pull it back to 50% power. Uh, so we we were burning about 4.8 gallons an hour for each engine. So uh, so that, that was the that, so that that was the extra consideration. Icing. We had TKS system of icing for the propeller and the, and the airfoil, which. Uh, probably at at low low consumption would give us about three hours and at high consumption probably about an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half. Uh, Obviously we had survival equipment, we had personal located beacons, we had uh, heavy duty immersion suits, we had life jackets and life rafts, Uh, we had satellite phone as backup, we had an HF radio, which was abominable, and didn't ever manage to get it to work properly.
0: <laughs> so you had the the bells and whistles then for this flight. Oh yes, it's well prepared. Uh,
1: yeah, we were well loaded. Uh, that, that was the concern as well was that the the actual loading of the aeroplane was slightly excessive.
0: They have a long runway at St John's, I hope.
1: They had a an, an admirably long runway, <laughs> thousand feet. And, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was something that we were considering. We took a, I took, um, the precaution of having us rotate at a much higher than normal speed, which, which was approximately when the aeroplane started to fly. We, we'd actually, when we picked it up from Vienna Neustadt, they'd, because it got this extra tank on it, they, um, they always make a point of filling a new airplane with, totally with fuel, which was the last thing we needed, because Vienna Neustadt has quite a short runway. <laughs> so um, we'd already had a, a clue as to how the airplane plane flew in a heavily laden configuration. And uh, we've made quite slow climbs and slow turns and were quite cautious in how, how we handled the aircraft. And we did the same at St John's, particularly as it was a night takeoff. But uh, I think the the margin of safety was the I think it's just just over 11,000 feet, and the Diamond uh, would have had probably two thirds of the runway to have used in an emergency situation. So that that probably is our safety margin that we we put into it so did you
0: have um, a reasonably long wait at st john's for the weather
1: not not terrifically um terry was quite apprehensive about the weather um and he didn't he didn't feel that it would be suitable on on several occasions when we decided to go and uh, i mean at the end of the day it was a joint trip so we had to make joint decisions but uh, we were considering actually laying the aeroplane up and probably waiting till the spring but um, in reality the, there was a really nice weather system sitting between uh, uh, Greenland and, and Iceland to the south of it and it was giving it would have given us some very very interesting tailwinds and uh, I did eventually persuade Terry to go. So after one day, we decided that we were going to go to England. Uh,
0: You say you set off very early in the morning. Is that the plan?
1: Well, we we took off at three o'clock in the morning local time, Um, and yeah, we managed this on the second night. We managed to get some more sleep, although it was nearly 40 because we prepared the plane. Uh, We we all the oxygen was on, was on board. I'd taken all the, all the actual wind forecasts and printed them off and plotted the route on those and worked out a really accurate uh, time en route, which I got down to 11 hours and 10 minutes, I believe. And the eventuality, was, I was 10 minutes out. But we, So we, everything was done. So we, we were going to go back to the hotel, get showered, uh, go out for a leisurely meal, uh, get some sleep, about a uh, five to six hours sleep, hopefully, and then arrive at the airport, put everything together and head off for, for, for England. And uh, we, we got our bags, came into the hotel, and uh, Terry's key wouldn't work on his door. It had one of these card keys. And I said, well, that's OK. I'll keep hold of all the cameras and the laptops and all the extra equipment that you've got while you go down and recharge the room keys. And uh, I waited and waited. And after 10 minutes, this taking an awful long time to get down there. And as I walked down the stairs, I, I walked to the stairs to the lift rather, and I pressed the lift. And one of the lifts wasn't working. So I went down in the lift, the reception, no Terry there, I'm quite surprised, I wonder maybe I've missed him in the lift, so I tried the other lift from downstairs again, it still didn't work. So i would come to the conclusion that he was stuck in the lift. <laughs> so banged on the door, but yes my, my, my fears were justified, he was actually stuck in the lift. Um, I went down to the reception tried to, to just uh, temper his frustration. He wasn't being the most cordial fellow uh, <laughs> and went and reported this uh, to, to the reception who actually seemed totally unconcerned and they were going to try and get an engineer in. We're going to do better than that. We've got to cross the Atlantic in the morning, and my colleague is stuck in the lift. <laughs> uh, uh, so after persuasion, they they sent for the engineer, um, and uh, I suppose uh, to me it was quite a funny situation. So I, uh, but, but with Terry stuck in the lift, he didn't quite share my. My sense of fun at the situation. <laughs> but anyway, it was resolved, and we went out for a meal. Uh, uh, it was very nice in St John's, and we managed to rest. And uh, we were on our way with, with, with quite favourable weather. Actually, the weather was, was better than expected on the departure.
0: So your route, proposed route, was via what? Greenland, Iceland?
1: <clears throat> no, this was a direct routing. It would be a great circle route from St John's. Yeah. Uh, the first landfall was the west side of, of uh, Ireland, crossing across uh, Cork, and then heading into the Bristol Channel and coming into um, Swansea was the intention. Uh, we actually we made a very slow departure. I I, I insisted that we we made slow turns probably under five degrees of bank to make a 180 qu- degree turn which had uh, again the controllers questioning as to what direction were we steering <laughs> we are going to steer east but we were going to take our time about yeah. it and uh, our climb was, was similar we, we took our time and made a, a, a high speed climb
0: the, um, the yeah. turning consideration was because you were heavily weighted
1: Heavily weighted, yes. Yeah,
0: let's put it that way, yeah.
1: yeah. And um, so we, we, we got on track and uh, we did encounter some cloud, but we're probably, again, we were clear of cloud by about 120, even though it's nighttime. We've got, we've got a slight moon there to show us what's happening there. And, and I would say definitely 120, but we'd actually planned to go up to 180, which we decided that we'd do, which it's quite uncomfortable with oxygen because you have cannular oxygen and you're trying to reduce the amount of oxygen that uh, you use with, with the little glass uh, tube. Uh, but uh, the, the bonus, of course, was that we had a forecast tailwind uh, for about a third of a trip of 120 knots, which uh, was quite a big prize to aim for. Uh, which we achieved. Um, probably the, the, the detrimental thing was that we'd got um, ice forming on the inside of the canopy. The diamond uh, heater system protested a little bit about going so high. Uh, <laughs> and uh, until the sun came up, uh, we probably got about two or three millimeters of ice on the inside of the windscreen. Great.
0: Great. <laughs> but you're warm enough in your immersion suits, I would imagine.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, still, still quite. I mean, I think we were in much better shape than poor old Alcock and Brown in their open cockpit <laughs> with in, in similar circumstances.
0: I'm sure I read that uh, one of them had to climb out on the wing and chip ice off the engine. So.
1: That, that, there's 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 a little bit of contention about that. Apparently, if, if you actually read the book. Uh, they're saying that it would have been difficult to climb out on the wing without um, uh, without actually encountering the propeller. So uh, there w- there were two gauges that he would have had to have climbed up and turned around and cleaned the ice off. Right. Uh, I think there was a little bit of artistic license applied to the story. I
0: don't don't ruin it for me now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But that doesn't detract from the fact it was an extremely brave thing to have done at the time. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's all right for you to say there, basking in your uh, Austrian luxury. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. You're my GPS telling exactly where I am, and my sat phone that like, I can talk to the world from my, where I am.
0: Yeah. So, did you say you stayed at twelve thousand feet all the way?
1: No, we went to eighteen thousand.
0: Okay, which is about the ceiling of the aircraft, is it?
1: Mm, they They say it'll go to twenty two but I've never been higher than eighteen thousand in it um, yeah, so do you want to hear a bit more about how we arrived or sure
0: yeah the, the flight was fairly uneventful d do you, you actually sleep en route
1: or are you? well i I have been captured nodding off um, and I thought that was a very cruel thing of Terry to do (laughs) to to film me nodding off because on an 11 hours duration flight we both nodded off Um, but not for very long. It was actually quite an exciting prospect the whole trip Um, and I tend to monitor the engine instruments and the position probably much, much more than I need to but uh, then uh, I, I don't think we had any Problems we encountered, but had we have lost any of the systems that would have meant ditching, which it, which was was a, a possibility even with our new modern high-tech aircraft, then I would have been. I, I wanted. We we normally make position reports at uh, every half a degree of, of longitude, and. Uh, Probably is around about an hour of flying in between position reports I would have wanted to have a really accurate uh, position report although the the diamond would would probably glide for quite a decent amount of time if you actually lost both engines
0: and it will fly adequately well on one engine oh
1: yeah yes yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a lovely airplane it's the future it's the future of aviation um, and they've had some difficulty with the engines but I think when they overcome that, it, it, it's certainly the cutting edge of aviation. It's it's, it's the direction it's all going to head into in the future. Um, but anyway, to digress, I suppose, yes, yeah, so we, we we didn't land in a bog in Ireland, which was...
0: Bonus. Yeah,
1: yeah, because where Alcock and Brown landed. Uh, we didn't have to fly immediately above the ocean to try to clear the ice, uh, we we had a deicing system if we'd have needed it. We had oxygen, so yeah, so we we were, we we're quite fortunate in yeah. 2009, aren't we? And you were uh, heading for Cardiff, did you say? For 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 um, Car- we were initially heading for Swansea. Okay. And, uh, I I put in all the special branch reports which, Alcock and Brown wouldn't have had to have dealt with. Uh we we started our descent over Ireland and we came down to about nine zero and then uh we picked up some weather from Shannon and we gave the we asked for the Swansea weather and we gave the IKO designator for Swansea and a little Irish voice came back to us and said, You did mean Norwich, didn't you? <laughs> And I never managed to get anything but Norwich's weather, <laughs> uh, which is quite disturbing. Yeah. So, and, and Harry did try to talk to them earlier on the sat phone, and they didn't answer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he called them again, and he said, oh, I tried you earlier, I was worried because I perhaps had not got the right number. He said, oh, we're just having a cup of tea there. <laughs> <laughs> there so... Uh, Quite human, but uh, anyway, so we descended uh, over Ireland, uh, came down towards the Bristol Channel, descended some more, and uh, as we descended, they said, no navigation, cancelled IFR, (laughs) which is the last thing I needed to hear. And we'd just flown across the pond, and because there's numerous danger areas off the South Coast and the Bristol Channel.
0: So why why did they cancel IFR?
1: I don't know. I I did actually do some non standard RT and 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 say to them that we could really use some assistance in getting into Swansea because we've just flown a clock across the Atlantic in a small plane. Which which they, they did did actually come up with the assistance so they were quite helpful. But uh when we talked to Swansea, Swansea had just immersed in fog um, there was a warm front heading across the, the UK and uh, it was there were there was no possibility of landing in Swansea at all um, as it happened though we, we've got a good fuel reserve so it wasn't uh, unduly worrying and we could have flown into central UK and completed our journey uh, so what we did was we we got uh, Terry a, a welcome committee organised of press and family and friends and we descended to a thousand feet and uh, we made a pass over the aerodrome at a thousand feet and then we headed on our way to Cardiff and uh, as we arrived in Cardiff the FOG was just about arriving there too uh, so as we got on the ILS the visibility was falling rapidly uh, to the extent that uh, <clears throat> we, we'd we um, established on the ILS and uh, the uh, the visibility in the cloud base were descending with us and uh, we just about managed to scrape in with the just within our parameters of flight visibility and 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 uh, decision height of 200 feet so uh, it was but uh, it was a very close run thing and i wonder whether we should have made the pass over to swansea in hindsight
0: <laughs> could have headed back to that bogging island with
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so perhaps we almost uh, mirrored some aspect of the flight all cotton ground
0: so relieved to be on the ground at last mm, it was actually it was how really... much fuel did you have left
1: We had approximately 20 gallons. Wow. Yeah, I was quite happy with that.
0: So the flying time was was relatively quick then, if you had a a hell of a tailwind.
1: Oh, it was, yeah. We did it in 11 hours, 10 minutes. Wow. Uh, It was, yeah, it was... Perhaps fate was being kind to us on that day.
0: So would you do it again?
1: (laughs) Oh, I have done. I I went across the Atlantic uh, with a, a... uh, a in July, uh, but but no, I haven't been uh, west-east with, with another aircraft. Uh, uh, but I dropped off a of Partenavia in southern Brazil, uh, and that was from Wick across to Reykjavik, and then across to uh, Greenland, Booth Bay. We, we actually, there's a there's, I don't know if it's a funny story, but we. It was a Brazilian registered part of Navia and uh, we had to sit to a strict itinerary of flight uh, and as we came out of Reykjavik I phoned up immigration in America and the American immigration let me know in no uncertain terms that I would actually gone on the trip on a very last minute thing and I was under the impression I could come in under the American waiver scheme and he informed me, no, I couldn't, and if I did, he'd deport me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's pretty sort of um, certain about his actions that he's gonna, going to take. And then, on the other hand, we got this plane that the Air Ministry in Brazil was saying, well, you have to follow the itinerary that you've put down with us. So we had to go from Goose Bay to Bangor, Maine, to Atlantic City, to uh, Orlando, and then had head down into the Caribbean, uh, which we'd, we'd got again, the itinerary was very defined. So we thought about this, and we thought, we'll talk to the owner of the aircraft, and he said, "Well, whatever you want to do, as long as you get the plane there, because we want it in San Paulo for the 10th or whenever it was, uh, for an aviation exhibition to try and sell some of these airplanes." So the, the, the solution seemed to be that I was going to leave. I've got a Brazilian pilot with me who didn't really want to fly on his own at all, which is why I'd accompanied the plane across the Atlantic. And uh, he wanted to. Uh, so he wanted me on the on the plane, but I couldn't do that legally. But I could clear customs and immigration in Halifax outbound from Canada and I could get a commercial flight into America and then meet up with the plane and come in under the visa waiver scheme so then I've got the I can still accompany him on his majority of the flight and uh, we thought well how are we going to say this we'll say well, if we say we've got an aircraft emergency we have to divert into Halifax we've booked a flight from Halifax for me into the US um, and then they are probably going to want to know what the nature of the problem is. Uh, so we decided in the end that we'd say we've got a medical emergency and we were diverting. Um, and that didn't actually work to, in our favour very well because we, as we approached Halifax, we said, oh, it's okay, we have somebody who's feeling a bit poorly, they're feeling better now. <laughs> but we are landing anyway
0: be watching out for you next time
1: <laughs> but uh, anyway we met up in bangor and uh, we completed the journey and the plane arrived at the exhibition but uh, yeah so that's uh, that's about the end of the story i suppose but uh they want another trip they want another after navy taken over in the next few weeks but this time they would like to go from uh the uh, west coast of Africa, uh, Dakar, and the Cape Verde Islands across to Natal. Wow. So at the moment I'm just planning on how how that can be accomplished with, in a past So that's sort of following Gene Batten's footsteps, again with a more modern plane with two engines, but we'll see how that all works out.
0: You've got a taste for this now?
1: It's It's quite exciting to, to, to um, actually get a feel for how the early aviators flew and um, probably we get more of a feel for it than when you go over in a large aircraft so yeah, it's 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 quite a, a how do you say addictive yeah uh, occupation
0: so is this um like a service that you're going to be offering you know f- uh, ferrying aircraft around
1: oh yes yeah most certainly I, i've actually got a website so here's the plug it's www.itftuk.com indiatango foxtrot tango uniformkilo.com and uh, I actually do so high level instruction for FAA uh, instrument ratings etc I also do ferry work Uh, I also do standing pilots because I I recently uh, helped out train uh, a private aircraft owner's crew on a, a, a Beach 90, which is a, the smallest version of the King Air. And uh, I'm quite happy to fly King Airs around for people if they would like that done for them. <laughs> and it's quite nice to have a pressurized aircraft that can go up to higher levels. Uh, so, yeah, so pretty much. And, and, and obviously, I'm, I've got uh, all JAR qualifications. I'm a JAR, C-P-L-I-R with a full instructor rating on that. So I can actually offer, I'm negotiating with the CAA to see what I have to do to actually offer people commercial instruction within the UK and possibly to do it outside of a school environment. Interesting. Hmm. Hopefully.
0: (laughs) Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. Great story.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat to me and uh, hopefully... I might update you at a future time, Steve. Look forward to it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Paul for the interview. I hope to have him back on again uh, in the future uh, with uh, one of his up-and-coming exploits. Well, that's it for episode 16. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. That's steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.